and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Matambo, and our guest today is Henry Ward. Henry is the CEO and co-founder of Carta, a global equity management platform on a mission to unlock the power of equity ownership for more people in more places. Carta manages over $3 trillion in equity for over 2 million people globally. The company is trusted by more than 40,000 companies and over 7,000 funds and SPVs to manage cap tables, compensation, valuations, liquidity, and more. Carter's liquidity solutions have returned $15 billion to shareholders in secondary transactions. The company has been included in the Forbes World's Best Cloud Companies, Fast Companies Most Innovative List, and Inc.'s Fastest Growing Private Companies. Prior to Carter, Henry was founder and CEO of Second Sight, a portfolio optimization platform for retail investors. He also held leadership positions at software companies, including Redworks Inc. and Between Markets. Henry graduated from the University of Michigan with a BGS in Mathematics and Computer Science and holds an MSc in Market Finance from EdHEC Business School. Join us as we explore Henry's fascinating journey of building a company that transforms the way we think about equity ownership in private markets. Henry's vision goes beyond just building a successful company. It's about democratizing ownership and sharing the wealth. Listen in as he discusses the challenges of concurrently scaling and innovating, what founders should focus on when fundraising, and how Carter is on a mission to make equity ownership a little more fair and equitable. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Henry. Welcome to the podcast. Where are you calling in from? Yeah, hi, Russell. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm in uh, met, I'm at home in Menlo Park, uh, California, uh, just in the Bay Area outside San Francisco. That's amazing. We're really excited to have you here. To set the stage, can you give a brief overview of what Carter does and his role in the fintech ecosystem? Yeah, so we're um, you know about 2,000 people. Uh, we have three business lines. Uh, about 60% of our revenue is kind of our core business, which is cap table management for startups. Uh, so we serve the startup venture ecosystem, uh, managing cap tables and their investors. Um, about 30% of our revenue is our um, five-year-old business, uh, which is fund administration for venture funds. So we manage their back offices uh, and their LP relationships uh, for, for venture uh, and then our newest business, it's uh, about a year and a half, two years old, is uh, the remaining 10% of our revenue, and it's our private equity cap table business. So we basically built uh, a cap table product similar that we built for venture-backed startups, but for private equity companies, it's a, it's a slightly different uh, legal and capital structure uh, that we start selling to private equity companies. And so that's our third third line of business. That's really interesting. Um, can you share the story behind the founding of Carta and what inspired you start the company? Yeah. So we looked at this um, uh, stock certificate problem. It was, it was really, you know, as many great businesses start, there's sort of this trivial, almost silly problem that exists uh, that suddenly balloons into something bigger. And for us, the silly, silly problem was this paper stock certificate that was being, you know, FedExed around when, when an investor invested in a company. Uh, and we said, oh, this is this is really weird that, you know, in 2000 at the time, 2013, 2014, investors were uh, uh, mailing paper stock certificates to invest in the next great, you know, you know startups of, uh, of that generation. And our idea was, hey, could we instead of mailing a paper stock certificate, 
uh, email uh, equity, uh, just like PayPal was doing for cash. We wanted to do that for private company equity. Uh, and by doing that, um, we would then uh, uh, manage the cap table of these companies. We would understand the capital structure of these companies because we would be issuing all of the, the shares of that company and then also managing the relationships uh, with of that company with their shareholders because all those shareholders would receive shares uh, from us um, on behalf of that company and have uh, 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 e-shares or Carta accounts um, on the platform. And that created this network effect of equity. And so you, you almost think of us as you know Venmo for um, uh, private company equity. Uh, and that idea fascinated us in, in part because it was an interesting problem in itself to solve. But if you could really understand the ownership network of venture-backed companies, and then even you can imagine private equity companies and other private assets, if you could understand the graph uh, of shareholder ownership between um, companies, venture funds, LPs, private equity, oil and gas, renewables, um, uh, you know, real estate, anything privately owned, um, uh, you have a lot of option value on that platform. Uh, and that's, that's what um, inspired us. And, and obviously the, the starting point was this simple common stock certificate for founders. Uh, that was the first, first product we launched was issue your own stock to yourself uh, via email. Um, and then it just grew from there. I love it. Um, I, I know you founded uh, another business before. Is this a problem that you face and, and that you felt the need to solve? Or is this a problem that you saw in the community and, 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 and were driven? Can you tell us a bit more? But take us back to, to the founding days and how this really sparked that interest for you. I was an unconventional entrepreneur in the sense that my first company uh, died. It was, um, uh, it was a, a robo-investor type company, like a Betterment or a Wealthfront. I just did a, a worse job. Uh, the, than Andy and Josh did. They, they did a better job uh, than I did and their company succeeded and my fa mine failed. Um, uh, so I was a, a founder without an idea and I was kind of thinking about what to do next and I just knew I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I knew I wanted to do that. I, I didn't care what the idea was. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur really badly. And one of the investors I worked with on my last company uh, said, hey, you know, you're, you're a finance guy, kind of, you know, hey, there's this stock certificate cap table problem. I think it's an interesting problem to solve. Um, you know, you should take a look at it. And so we kind of brainstormed together and started to piece this idea together about, you know, could we, could we effectively dematerialize stock and, and put it in the cloud? So take it out of paper uh, and put it in the cloud uh, and issue the stock online. Uh, and, and then when you, when you solve that problem, or if you could solve that problem, uh, the, the amount of things you could do on top of that, you could build a, a stock exchange for private companies. You could, um, take companies public. You could, you know, expand to different asset classes. There's just so many, there's so much option value on building that platform. And that's what, what captured my imagination. And that's the idea I decided to, to, to go tackle. That's amazing. You mentioned in a Medium article previously that one of the investor criticisms has been how big can the cap table market be? How have you seen the landscape of equity management evolve over the years? And in your words, how big is the market? The, that's uh, been the criticism uh, for, for Carta from the seed round and, and still it. You know, when we work with growth uh, investors today, uh, or even, you know, as we think about, you know, one day being a, a public company potentially, 
you know, the, the number one um, concern investors have is, is how much room do we have to grow uh, in, in this business? Uh, and uh, uh, there's, it's a challenge for us. There's, there's really two, I think, two types of companies. You know, if you think about like us compared to, you know, a Rippling or a Snowflake or a MongoDB, uh, you know, th- those companies I, I would call sort of execution companies. They, they have like huge TAMs, you know, there, there's, there's endless TAM for HR software. You know, there's an endless TAM for database software. There's an endless TAM for, you know, analytics software. Uh, um, uh, but in our markets, um, there isn't, you know, you know, Rippling, Snowflake, they can sell themselves. They, there's a path to a billion, 10 billion, 50 billion in revenue um, of the same product uh, for us. There isn't any any one of our markets. There's a, a pretty limited TAM, you know, maybe 200, 500 million, maybe a billion. So how do you stitch together markets that can collectively get to two, five, ten billion in revenue? That's always been uh, the challenge for us. And I would describe us as an innovation company where in any market we're in, um, we know we're going to run out of oxygen and we have to constantly innovate uh, our way out to find larger markets uh, uh, to go after. Uh, and that's that's what makes, you know, both working at Carta and, and running Carta an exciting company to work for because we're constantly innovating, but also a, a scary one both to work for and invest in uh, because uh, it, it's 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 unclear, you know, how how where the next growth vector will come from. We have to keep finding it. Yeah. No, that's, that's really informative. And actually, I had this question for later, but... Um, one of the things that, that we've seen and you've touched on right now is that, you know, Carta has continuously innovated uh, its product offering. Um, and some of the products include sort of deal concierge, uh, liquidity offering, compensation be- benchmarking, and, and there's many more. Um, I'm curious to hear what is your process for new product development? How do you think about these new markets and getting into new markets? And, and, how are you building a culture in the business to drive continuous innovation after innovation? Yeah, it's it's really hard, Russell. It's a, such a great question. Uh, I I I almost think of this as um, it's a little bit like music. Uh, you know, there's um, a, a lot of musicians. Very few can can make a song or an album. You know, that goes platinum uh, that a lot of people buy. Um, but there's also a lot of sort of one hit wonders or one album wonders that, that get one album, never do two. Um, and then there's, you know, a handful that can get two, you know, great albums. And then there's, you know, a few that just do great album after great album, you know, Rolling Stones, Eminem, just, you know, there's, there's, there's um, the greats that can do this over and over again. And it's a little bit like that with founders, you know, that, you know, um, the, the great founders, that can just do product after product, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, Zuckerberg, just product after product that that works. Um, and it's really, really uh, hard to do. You know, I would say we're really in the early innings. Uh, you know, we have two products uh, that um, have scaled over 100 million um, in ARR, which for us would sort of be a, you know, a hit product uh, that, that works. So the first one obviously is cap table management. The second one is is fund administration. We have a few few products that are in the. We have a couple products that are in the twenty million dollar range that that we think could get to a hundred million. And so if, if they get to a hundred million, we we view them as sort of having escape velocity. Uh, uh, and so so how do you how do you generate both a company that can scale, you know these these hundred million dollar product lines, you know to five hundred million to a billion, but then also 
has the agility and the innovation, you know, innovative spirit to, to experiment and generate the next $100 million product. Um, that, that's, I think, one of the, the, the real challenges uh, of building a, a modern software company. I, I think one of the best books I've read on it is, is called Loon Shots. Uh, and it's really how do you how do you build a scaling organization uh, that also is an innovation um, uh, organization? And it's one of the the problems we wrestle with, you know, every day um, at, at Carta, both at the exec team level and all the way down to the to the IC level. That's that's very informative, and thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really like you, like you mentioned a very difficult task, but I think you do it very well um, in terms of ideating and scaling at the same time. Just on that note, what emerging fintech or financial industry trends are you particularly excited about? And how do you think Carter will adapt going forward to, to leverage these trends? I think uh, there's certainly, well, I, I think there's a couple of things going on. So one is, um, this might not be a good thing. This might be a bad thing turning, I think, into a good thing. So I think there's this wave of fintech companies that um, sort of took um, a, a financial, you know, transactional view of the world um, and raised raised money as a so- as software companies and kind of look, you know, look like so- software companies, but were really, you know, fintech finance companies. Uh, I think they're going through a little bit of a, a tougher time now, um, but many of them are pivoting uh, uh, their their business models into software. Uh, companies, so I think you're seeing sort of this transition of sort of fintech companies turning into software companies that they've got this you know original wedge uh, into into something through fintech, but they're now turning into software companies. The challenge in fintech has always been this old uh, adage, which is uh, that that there's no real innovation in finance um, uh, because. There's no IP, you know, nothing's patentable, you know, finance is finance. You know, if, if you build something in finance, somebody else can build something in finance. There's nothing um, uh, innovative or defensible there. Um, uh, that, the, that, that the only way you win uh, in finance is um, uh, regulatory defensibility and uh, distribution. Th- those are the two competitive advantages. And that's why a startup can never win in, in, in finance. And that's why the big banks uh, always dominate and startups startups don't win. I, I think that's largely largely true. What I do think will happen is that software companies will wrap around financial organizations because what uh, uh, software companies are really good at is the consumer experience. Uh, and I think what you're going to find is more and more is that the the big banks will retreat into doing what they do best, which is manage the regulators, move the money, um, uh, uh, manage distribution uh, of products, um, but they'll start doing that more and more through APIs um, uh, and doing backend infrastructure. And you'll start to see software companies own more of the user interface, and then and then partner with the banks on the backend. You know, and sort of the 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 largest scale version of that, of course, is Apple and Apple Pay, and you know everything they did with Goldman. Um, but you start to see that with Stripe and you start to see that with with other companies that are starting to build user interfaces on top of um, APIs that the big banks are are, are providing. So I, I think you'll start to see see more and more of that. But I don't think you'll see, uh, unfortunately, I, I think it's going to be very hard for startups to truly innovate in fintech uh, over the next five to 10 years. It's just such a hard space. Yeah, that's helpful. 
I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned as well, one of the key areas to differentiate in the fintech arena is regulatory defensibility. Um, can you talk about how, as Carter, you are interfacing with regulators, policymakers, et cetera, and of course, where there's capital involved, where there's investments, there's obviously a lot of oversight. But one of the big advantages that, that investors I've seen investing in the private markets is perhaps some of that regulatory dissociation and that I guess the regulators are not as involved or as, as detailed in how they look at private market transactions versus public market transactions. Can you talk to us about that dynamic and, and how and where Carter fits in there and, and how you think about regulation? Yeah, we spend a lot of time in in DC on two fronts. One is sort of in the regulatory front, where we're regulated uh, by the SEC and FINRA, and, and spend a lot of time working with the regulators on what it means to be a regulated entity in the in the private markets. You know, we're a, a registered uh, SEC registered transfer agent, we're a, a broker dealer, we're a, a ATS uh, alternative trading system. So, so we have a lot of regulatory um, requirements, and we're kind of a unique. We're unique in all three fronts uh, because uh, there's nobody else that's regulated the way we are uh, working in the private markets uh, sp- uh, exclusively. Uh, so, so there's that side of it, and then we also have a policy team that works on a lot of um, legislative issues around the, the private markets, and and we're trying to shape um, how private markets should work uh, in the future. You know, regulation is one of these interesting things where regulators uh, naturally tend to favor incumbents because if you're a regulator. It's, it's much easier to regulate, um, you know, six to eight institutions, you know, call it banks or broker dealers or, you know, anything. It's much easier to regulate six to eight large entities versus hundreds of small entities. And so regulation almost always favors incumbents uh, and scale uh, and deters um, competition and deters uh, startups. And so there's this, like, in, uh, I think one of the things that um, as private markets mature, if if regulators become more uh, involved in regulation of private markets, um, the incumbents will, will, for better or for worse, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but for, for better or for worse, uh, the incumbents will disproportionately um, uh, benefit from that. Just like, uh, you know, the big big four, big six investment banks um, uh, in the public markets disproportionately you know, benefit from, from regulation. The, the big three, you know, transfer agents disproportionately benefit, you know, the big four, uh, audit firms disproportionately benefit from regulation. Like uh, that just is always true, uh, in any regulated market and then unregulated markets, um, uh, tend to actually favor, um, uh, competition, uh, uh, and startups that can come in and disrupt. Um, and so the question I think in the private markets that we're trying to figure out is, um, is, is, are the private markets going to be increasingly regulated? And if so, at what pace and, and how? And then, you know, do we, are we an incumbent uh, in that regulatory world or are we a disruptor in that regulatory world? And I'm curious on that point, where do you think you fall in that spectrum? I think it depends a little bit on the administration. Uh, I think if the Democratic administration continues to uh, own the White House uh, and Congress uh, over the next for 10, you know, four, eight, 12 years, uh, there'll be increasing uh, regulation in, in the private markets. Uh, and I, I think we will be in, in that incumbent uh, um, status. I think if the Republicans um, uh, take over or there's something in the middle ground, I think it will probably be more like status quo 
uh, of where it is. Um, and then it, it's we still may be in that incumbent status, um, but regulation may be um, uh, uh, it, it won't it won't develop as quickly in, in the private markets. The the SEC has has constantly said they want to regulate the private markets, but they just haven't. Um, they just keep getting busy and in crypto <laughs> and. NFTs and you know everything else that's going on. Uh, so so they just haven't haven't gotten gotten there yet. What Carta and and the platform does is is creates more transparency into what the private sector uh, what the private sector looks like. What gives it more peace of mind to know that okay things are going on in in a orderly fashion, or do you think that increased transparency makes it easier for them to wanna? step in and and, and 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 regulate that space I think it gives them peace of mind uh, to know that there's um, one entity like us that they can regulate and and make sure things are going well so so as an example you know we do KYC and OFAC checking uh, for all of our customers you know we've got you know 60 70 percent of the the startups invent and inventure are, are in Carta and and their shareholders and you know when uh, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know we could immediately report uh, um, any any Russian money that was being invested in startups and where that was going and all of those things. So I think that was a net a net benefit to the to the regulators, and so that's a, a really positive thing. Um, I think they do want more transparency uh, than exists today, and so you're seeing, for example, the Corporate Transparency Act, you know, uh, that should be coming in next year. Uh, and other other legislation that's coming in that's pushing more uh, and more transparency. Uh, so I don't think it's enough. I, I think given given us participating and uh, in, in bringing some structure uh, to the, to to the private markets uh, is is helpful. But but uh, the, there's there's clearly a, a desire for more. Mm, that's helpful. And just on that note with the data. Um, I, for one, definitely appreciate a lot of the data that, that I see you publish on, on LinkedIn. Very detailed, very informative, and it's data you can't get um, anywhere else. I'm curious, in addition to, I, I guess, the insight about the Russia-Ukraine war and where that investment money is going, I'm curious about what other insights you've been able to glean from the data you have access to and, and what kind of impact or influence this kind of data has had. Yeah, it's, it's it's super interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, often people ask is, you know, how bad is it? Uh, uh, you know, venture is obviously going through its cycle, uh, and it's in a bear market right now. Um, and uh, one of the things we notice as we look at the trends over the last five years, if you if you compare current fundraising and startup activity, uh, which we really measure uh, in in terms of uh, number of deals and, and amount raised. Um, it, if you compare it to sort of 21, 22, you know, and, and second half of twenty twenty, uh, it, it's it's tough. It's a very tough year. But if you compare us to two thousand eighteen, nineteen, it's pretty comparable. Uh, you know, this year will be about the same as twenty twenty eighteen and nineteen. Which back in twenty eighteen and nineteen, we we all were saying this is the greatest startup fundraising environments ever uh, in history. And and so um, so what I've been telling people is, you know, 21 uh, in the second half of 2020 and the first half of 22 was such an anomaly. You know, this COVID thing was like, it just broke every chart uh, that we have. But if you if you took that out, uh, if you just took out the, those two years and, and um, 
from all the charts, uh, it's actually not terrible. Like it's just, it's, it's a growing asset class, uh, and it's continuing to grow. Um, and so I, I think things are actually pretty good. I, I think it's healthier than people, people think, but it just feels really tough because, uh, we're all, we're all benchmarking to the watermark of 2021, which was just such an extraordinary outlier. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the question around sort of scaling your business, uh, we talked about, you know, scaling to new products and, and, and uh, market areas. Um, I'm curious to hear more about your scaling to new geographies. So in 2022, um, I know that Carter acquired Volban and Capdesk in the UK and Zen Equity Technologies in India. So this is definitely giving an indication of, you know, geographic expansion um, ideas. Uh, can you talk us through some of the rationale of these deals and, and more broadly, how you are thinking about global expansion? Yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time over the last year and a half traveling the world. Uh, last week, I actually was in uh, uh, Kenya and uh, Dubai, um, looking at Africa and, and the Middle East. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to see these different ecosystems and how they evolve. You know, in, in 2020, we decided to plant a flag in Singapore. Um, uh, and, and the reason was Singapore, Southeast Asia was just starting to, uh, you had Gojek and you had Grab and you had some of these, these early, you know, companies that, that were starting to, to gain traction. You know, what's interesting about the market structure of Southeast Asia is, um, it, it's, it's very binary. It's all or nothing. You have, you know, all these founders that are, you know, working on super apps, uh, you know, two founders and a dog, you know, just trying to get something to work and then, and then they'll get something to work and they have 300 million Indonesians to, to sell to, uh, and then they'll, they'll shoot straight through a billion dollars in market cap and, and become, you know, go Jekograph. Um, and there's nothing in the middle cause there's no, there's no sort of B2B or, you know, it's very, it's all consumer. It's, it's, it's something works or it doesn't. Uh, and so it's very interesting, you know, market structure, uh, there. Um, so we, we launched, a, um, uh, an office there. We've got about 50 people in Singapore now. Um, and that services the, the whole Southeast APAC region for us. Uh, then last year we, we decided we wanted to establish a foothold in Europe. So we, we bought two companies. We did it inorganically. Uh, in Europe, and so now we're we're active in in the UK and continental Europe, uh, both on cap um, uh, you know cap table side as well as fund administration, which we also do in Singapore. Uh, we've started, you know, I was in Dubai um, uh, last week, uh, learning about how how things are happening in the Middle East. Uh, in in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, it, it and Saudi Arabia and UAE, it feels a lot like Singapore uh, did a few years ago. Where Singapore was was trying to catalyze uh, a venture ecosystem uh, through through the government, you know, the government was attracting investors, uh, investing in funds, uh, doing direct investing into startups themselves um, to catalyze an ecosystem. And the same is now happening in in uh, the UAE uh, and and Saudi Arabia, where the governments are are trying to catalyze an ecosystem. What's really interesting about um, the Singapore. Uh, Singapore and the Middle East is, I would call them sort of a supply constrained ecosystem where in the United States and Europe, I would des describe it as demand constrained. So in the United States, you know, uh, there's more founders chasing capital than there's capital chasing founders. You know, we have a lot of animal spirits. Founders are trying to start companies uh, and they're trying to, trying to get capital for it. There's not enough capital for everybody and they're fighting for capital. 
in, in UAE and Singapore, it's the opposite. The government is, is pushing capital into the ecosystem. They, there's not enough talent in the area uh, for all of that capital. And so they're trying to, find, trying to get founders to, to, to come to the ecosystem that they can invest in. Uh, it's a very interesting way uh, to start an, uh, a venture um, community. And so I, I think there's this interesting question that, that's still open. You know, can a government catalyze the animal spirits of a venture ecosystem through capital? Can they, can they actually inject capital to create the talent uh, that will then create the next generation of, of startups in the ecosystem? Uh, the jury's out, but we're, we're actively tracking these ecosystems to see because if they become the next, you know, Silicon Valleys of, of, of Southeast Asia, of MENA, you know, um, uh, we, we obviously want to be there. Uh, and so we're spending a lot of time there. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, actually, an interesting note is I worked in Dubai and Abu Dhabi before um, coming to grad school. Um, I was actually very closely involved in some of those projects to, to direct capital to, to founders. Um, and they spent a lot of time trying to uh, attract founders globally, you know, to, to come and set up in, in Abu Dhabi um, or Dubai to, to, to build that ecosystem. So uh, that definitely echoes my experience there previously. Um, you also mentioned having visited Kenya and explored the African market. Um, so this is, of course, a place close to my heart as, a, as an African. Uh, and I'm curious, what are your thoughts or assessments of, of that market? Do you think there is, there is that animal spirit you talk about? Um, and, and how do you find that you know, supply and demand balance between um, the raw talent and, 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 and spirit versus the capital? Yeah, I, I was there visiting uh, some some investors and then some customers and and actually a, um, uh, a friend Marvin who's the CEO of Raise, which is the Carta of Africa. Uh, you know they're doing cap table management there, and you know it's it's um, uh, I would say that uh, Africa looks more like the U.S. in the sense that there's a lot of animal spirits, a lot of founders that want to start companies. Um, uh, capital is hard to come by there, so the challenge is how do we get more more capital there? Um, uh, but the 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 uh, the interesting thing about it is, you know, it's a huge continent. Um, there's a huge population, so if you get something working, um, there, there's a big market to sell to, particularly um, in fintech. Like I think that's that's where this, you know, things like like payments and microloans and lending, like that's that's where um, uh, stuff, you know. I think product market fit seems to be really be resonating. There's some some real um, hard problems that can get can get solved there, and the banking infrastructure there is so um, antiquated that there there actually could be some real um, opportunities there. So, and they're starting to get some 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 success stories um, uh, in in Africa. So so it'll it'll be interesting to see. They're going through a little bit of a tough time right now, just because of the the. You know the withdrawal of, of capital and VC in general uh, always kind of hits the emerging markets hardest. Um, just just like we're seeing it in India. Uh, you know, India had you know so much capital flowing in you know circa 21, 22, and and now it's um, it's drying up. You know, faster than in the U.S. Uh, same same things happening in Africa, but hopefully it, it stabilizes soon um, and the founders can access capital um, uh, soon uh, again. Yeah, yeah, I'm really hopeful for that too. Um, now just taking this fundraising question and, and maybe reflecting inwards, right? So 
Carter is backed by some noteworthy investors, including A16Z, Lightspeed, Silver Lake. Um, and you've gone through quite a few rounds, all very successful and, and building upon the last. Can you share some insights, uh, both from your experience and perhaps some of the data that you that you have access to? Um, what makes a f- successful fundraise? What makes investors excited about an opportunity? And, and you know how how if you were speaking to to that um, African founder or that Middle Eastern founder that's that's hungry and has an animal spirit, what would you tell them? Yeah, I think it changed it changes a little bit in the in the stage so i would say in the early stage you know it's it's really about the the founder uh and investors are really looking for can a founder materialize three things um one is um uh customers employees and capital uh because that's 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 all a founder has to do right is can they create customers can they get employees to join the company and uh, can they get capital uh, to fund the company? Uh, and if the founder can do three those three things like over and over, right? That's that's the skill set is is to is to to create those three three things. Um, uh, and so it's really about building confidence that the founder founder can do that. Um, I think as the company gets a little bit bigger, um, it it turns into this question of um, this combination of um, the company metrics and then the storyline and the vision uh and so there's this combination of you know after you know say series c you know bc you know you go in with your cfo and the cfo is talking about the business you know metrics and really partly it's the metrics because they're financial you know investors um but also it 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 shows that that it's a little bit of your stats like if you're in if you're an athlete, right, and you're you're trying to join the the, the you know the major league baseball team, so much of the bet on you is how are you going to perform in the majors? But you know your stats matter, right? Because it, it shows it's your resume of what you've been able to put together. And so by the time you get to like a Series B, it's not just potential; like you actually have a resume, a demonstration of what you've been able to accomplish. And so part of it is. Have you put together a resume of the company that's that's compelling that says, "Hey, I, I know how to build a business." Um, and then two is, can you tell a story of how this business scales into something big? And you know, the venture math is always, "Give me a dollar and I'll return 10. Um, and that that's hard. You know, when you when someone gives you a two million dollar seed round, you know, how do you take two million bucks and return twenty? That's hard. You know, when you do our growth round and they're like. You know, here's here's uh, five hundred million dollars. You know, uh, how do you return five billion? Um, that's really hard. Uh, yes, and so, yeah. So that's the you know that's the the story you have to you have to tell. Yeah. No, thank you. That that's very helpful. And I think our audience would really love those tips. Um, and, and I love how you articulated the three main areas for an early stage startup and the the sports analogy for for a growth stage. I think as we continue to reflect inwards, uh, I'm very curious to hear more about, you know, Henry and, and, and what makes Henry tick and, and how you've sort of envisioned leadership at, throughout your journey at Carter. I think my first question for you in this regard is one of the goals that you've mentioned for Carter is to create more equity owners. I'm wondering what does this mean to you and why is this so personally important? I see this repeated over and over again and, and I, I know it's very important. So I'm, I'm curious to hear 
What makes a person important to you? Yeah, so I've always had this, um, uh, I think it's two things. I've always, one, had sort of this chip on my shoulder about fairness, um, uh, you know, and, and just kind of the world's a little bit, you know, more than a little bit unfair. Uh, it's just not, you know, it's not a super fair place. And I'm, I'm not one of these, you know, um, people that think the world can be, can be fair and should be fair. Like it's, it's always going to be an unfair world, but, but can we just make it a teeny bit more fair? And what's my, my contribution, um, uh, to that. And I, I think building a company that makes equity ownership, um, uh, you know, is, is a, is a way to, to make the world just a, you know, an inch more fair than it used to be. Um, and then I think, um, the second part is like this wealth problem, uh, I, I find really fascinating. You know, if you look historically, you know, it's always the, the owners, uh, that, that have been the wealthiest whether it's the landowners, uh, whether it's the shareholders, you know, whether it's the business owners, like they, they've always done better than the, than the workers. Um, and, you know, is there a way that we can de- democratize ownership more? Um, uh, you know, I, I grew up, you know, small town, you know, Michigan, like I, you know, my parents were sort of middle class. Like, you know, I, I, I've, you know, I used to think, uh, you know, when I grew up, like a million dollars, just like an incredible, like, I just like, couldn't have been imagined. You know, I remember like, I thought if I had a hundred thousand dollars one day, like that would be like unbelievable. And, you know, you know, ownership in Carta has, has made more money for me than I ever imagined possible. And is that something that we could do for, for other people? And, and I, I've seen it work, not just for me, but, you know, early employees, you know, sent me pictures of their houses and cars and vacations and things that they've gotten to do and going back to school and companies that they've gone on to start. And I, I've just seen it work. Um, uh, and how do we get, you know, more people uh, uh, to get that to work for um, uh, so again, it, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not going to fix everything, but, but if we can move, uh, move in that direction just a little bit, um, that would be a, a life worth living. That's very inspirational, Henry. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like it's been a very fulfilling, um, journey building Carter, having that impact, um, beyond just Carter. I'm curious over the, the years that you, you know, led Carter to where it is now. Um, can you talk to us about some of the the key milestones that that Carter's achieved, but but not so much the company, and and more about how these key milestones have have influenced you um, and and your own personal growth. Yeah, I I have this kind of interesting thing when I I talk to um, other founders where they talk about imposter syndrome, which I know is like the super common um, uh, you know feeling, and you know, when, when founders ask me, you know, like, how do you, you know, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? And, um, there's even like this view of like, you know, it's called a syndrome. Like it's a, it's a bad thing. Um, you know, there's something wrong. And, and I always, you know, say like, um, uh, well, you, you decide to start a company, which you've never done before to solve a problem that's never been solved before. Um, uh, and, and to build a company that's never existed before. Um, like it would be weird if you didn't, right? Because you're literally doing something that's never been done before, including by you, but but even by no by nobody, right? It's it's never it's never been done, and so it would be weird uh, if if you didn't have uh, you know didn't feel like an imposter. And I wouldn't in, even call it a syndrome. Like I would call it a um, 
just it, it like it, it, imposter benefit, right? Like it's just like it's what what you are. You are an imposter, um, and it's something to embrace versus fear. Uh, and I, I think one of the things to to realize about being um, uh, a founder is this: uh, by definition, everything I do um, is new. So tomorrow, the company is a bigger, hopefully better, different company than it was today. Uh, and I've got to learn how to, how to manage that. And the problems I deal with tomorrow will be different than today. I've, nobody taught me how to run a 2000 person company. I'm, I'm figuring it out. It's, it's the, this is the biggest company I've ever worked for. Um, and, uh, so I'm learning all this, uh, as I go too. Uh, and that's just part of, part of the journey. And I, I think one of the, the magical things about embracing, you know, being, being an imposter versus fearing it. Uh, is it just, it does give you um, uh, a sense of confidence that, hey, you know, it's okay that I don't know how to do stuff, right? My job is to figure it out because by definition, every day I'm, I'm doing something I don't know how to do uh, and I've got I've to learn. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. For listeners who might be interested in joining Carter, are you hiring and what qualities do you look for? Yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely hiring. Um, uh, I would say that there's sort of uh, uh, two things that that um, uh, I think make people successful at Carta. Uh, so one is we're very much a, a learning company. Um, you know, when I hire executives or you know managers, leaders that come sort of with a, a playbook, um, they, they tend not to work uh, out so well uh, at Carta. We just we just do things a little different, and I, I'm not sure why or you know, if that's even a good thing or a bad thing yet, I, but it just, it just happens to be that way. We, we just do things a little different. And so when you hire somebody from a, a company that, uh, where they're like, Hey, you know, I, I learned this playbook and this is what I do. And I'm going to come in and, you know, implement my playbook at Carta. It, it just doesn't work so well. We tend to hire the people that succeed at Carta tend to be sort of more, more athletic, you know, and, and not physically, but in the sense that they, they, they adapt, you know, they like learn the cart away and then they they apply their skill set to the way we do things and then they they bend the arc for us um but they they learn learn us um and they they figure us out uh so i, I think that's one is that sort of you know that 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 sort of ability to adapt and learn uh, learn about us and impact us and then the second is we're very detailed you know oriented hand, you know get our hands dirty uh, type of, of company. You know, if you talk to, you know, a C-level executive and you ask him about, you know, one customer or a deal or, you know, a, you know, the MQL to S0, you know, opportunity, you know, conversion rates or, you know, the, the, the bug that we had last Tuesday, you know, they'll know, uh, they just, they're just, they're in it. There's no like armchair, you know, leaders at, at Carta We're we're in the weeds of everything. Um, and so that, that, that that focus on understanding everything and being able to dive deep uh, into everything. Um, uh, uh, th- those are the the leaders at Carta that, that succeed, and the the ones that don't um, uh, don't succeed here. Thank you for painting such a clear picture. Um, it's very clear what, what the culture is and, and what you prioritize. And for my last question, what's a fun fact about you that most people wouldn't know? You know, I, I don't know if it's fun, uh, but. Um, uh, a lot of people are uh, surprised to learn 
uh, just randomly uh, when I was 18, I enlisted in the Marines. And so my first introduction to, to kind of, uh, I, I had odd jobs as a high school student, but my first kind of job uh, was the was the military, which is a far cry uh, from from tech, uh, f- uh, being a tech founder. Uh, so I, I feel like I've done the the gambit uh, of jobs. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, how, how long did you stay in the military for? Uh, a total, uh, it was uh, six years between active duty and reserves. I, I was in the reserves for a little while when I went to college. But um, wow, yeah. That's impressive. That's impressive. I've definitely gained a lot of appreciation for for my colleagues and classmates that, that went the military and something I definitely respect. So um, kudos to you. That's a very fun fact. <laughs> that, thanks, Russell. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us, Henry. This has been such an inspirational, informative, um, and, and highly valuable chat for us. Um, I hope it's been the same for you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, Russell. Thanks so much for, for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, you can subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Russell Matambo.